This is the Hidden Why Podcast, episode 616 with Alan Gennett. Welcome to the Hidden Why's 30-minute power segment. I am passionate about creating a lifestyle that minimizes suffering and regret. The purpose of life is not simply to survive, but to thrive, and I believe we do that by creating a life with greater freedom, fulfillment, and happiness. Each week, I'll be delivering a 30-minute conversation with a guest expert on a topic that they are knowledgeable and passionate about, with the purpose to inspire and educate us all. I don't have all the answers. I'm simply trying to figure life out. And through greater awareness and understanding, I can put into practice what I learned to further my life's progression. I can't give you your life's map. I can't show you the way, but I can assist you in discovering your why. I can help you define your life's compass to guide you purposefully to act on and pursue your life's desires. And from there, watch happiness ensue. My guests are the experts. They are the people I learn from. They provide the inspiration, education, and methodology that we can all benefit from in better navigating the ultimate life. Without further ado, let the show begin. Today's feature guest is Alan Gannett. Alan is the founder and CEO of Track Maven, a marketing analytics platform whose clients have included the likes of Microsoft, Marriott, Sakes Fifth Avenue, Home Depot, Honda, and GE. He has been on the 30 under 30 lists for both Inc. and Forbes. He is a contributor for fastcompany.com and has an upcoming book called The Creative Curve on how anyone can achieve moments of creative genius. It's coming out very soon, or it's actually already been released. Guys, please give it up for Alan and enjoy this interview about creativity. Alan, welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. How are you today? I'm great, man. How are you doing? Man, I'm good. I've got my pot of tea here and ready for an inspiring conversation with yourself. Classic British person. Hey, yeah, kind of. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So, Alan, let's talk about creativity. You've got a new book coming out uh, titled The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. So really uh, interested and curious to talk to you about creativity. How does that sound? I think it sounds great. It's the last three years of my life been working on this thing. So I have a couple thoughts. Yeah, I'm sure you do. So tell us why creativity, why is this topic so important to you? Yeah, so I've always been one um, to get a little frustrated at times. And, um, you know, my my job is I run a big data company called TrackMaven that works with some of the biggest marketing teams in the world to help them understand the patterns in their, in their marketing data. Yeah, and, man. you know, I realized when I'm talking to a lot of these marketers, I would hear something like this. They'd say something like, well, you know, I'm just not that creative. And for me, this is very frustrating because I've always been sort of a student of history. I've read lots of autobiographies and memoirs by you know, great creative people. And when you read their actual first-person accounts, they're not the stories of sort of winning the genetic lottery and you know being lucky. No, they're actually the stories of lots of hard, thoughtful work. Not just hard work, but hard, thoughtful work. And so I started giving this talk all about the truth around um, creative genius. The talk was really well received and sort of spiraled into this book a few years later, which the the book aims to do two things. One, to make the case using science and history that creativity is a nurturable, learnable skill. And second, 
I interviewed about 25 living creative greats. These are billionaires like David Rubenstein, um, startup moguls like you know Kevin Ryan, who did MongoDB and Business Insider, Alexis Ohanian, who founded Reddit, um, Pasek and Paul, who are the songwriting duo behind you know La La Land, Dear Ed Hansen, and The Greatest Showman. And from these interviews, I also found these four patterns, these four things that these great creatives did to actually enhance their creativity yeah. and to nurture it. And I explain what those four things are and how you can do it too. In the book, uh, Alan, just you might be talking a bit close to the microphone there. I'm not sure. I can hear. I can hear your uh, your your passion coming out of your your breath. <laughs> I'll back up a sec. Um, but look, sounds um, yeah, really important and, and creative genius. So it's not saying that um, some people are born with and some people are born without. Correct. Creative creativity. When you actually look at the studies that have been done around it, hmm. there's actually. Um, a lot of clarity that IQ, for example, isn't that big of a driver of creativity. The biggest drivers around creativity are actually things like openness. Openness is something you can get better at. You can develop. You can become more open-minded. And so we have this mistaken notion in Western culture. I think because we sort of put up on a pedestal so many of these creative geniuses, we sort of have this notion that you know these people are somewhat divine. They're godlike. You know, we talk about Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and mm. these sort of reverential tones, and we forget that really these are typically just people who had interesting life experiences very early on, and those life experiences set them on a path which, over many many years, leads to where they are now. Have you always been a creative type yourself? Um, I don't know. I mean, I was a only child of divorced parents. I spent a lot of time by myself growing up and I was always sort of trying to be, you know, find things to amuse myself and to be resourceful. And so ever since I was very young, you know, I've been starting companies and, um, you know, I started my first sort of entrepreneurial enterprise when I was in fourth grade. I started my first company company when I was 16. And so I've always been doing that stuff. Um, and I've always sort of had that that itch. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I really feel creativity is essential for everyone, um, and I th- certainly think it link, leads oh, sort of links with expression, so self expression and just general expression. And I believe that's a fundamental uh, human need. Actually, I think we need to fulfil that. What are your thoughts on why creativity is important for anyone? So there's there's two answers. So one I'd say is that it's just very fulfilling on an emotional level to create and to do it in a way which is successful. The second one is more of a economics argument, which is that right now we're going through a time where even white collar jobs are being automated away. As AI gets even better, you're gonna see even more of that automation come into play. One of the last and final things that AI will take to actually be able to automate is creative tasks. Creative tasks are the tasks that are right now probably the most protected financially for the medium term. Mm. If you want to live in the 21st century, more and more the jobs that are going to survive and thrive are going to be creative jobs. So I think there's a very pure financial argument, in fact, for focusing on your creativity. Financial argument for creativity. That's really important. <laughs> it's probably something we don't think about. Or I certainly don't think about too often either. Um, certainly that's where the jobs seem to be heading. Um, so how can we develop the creative process in our life? And does it just mean that we have to be drawing pictures or can we bring creativity to any, any area of our life? 
Yeah. So the creativity is one of those words that we all sort of think we know what it means, but it's actually really hard to describe. Like if I painted a painting, um, or if you saw a random painting on a wall, being able to say whether or not it's creative really depends on the entire context around it. There's a whole timing element, right? If I just painted a replica of the Mona Lisa, well, it might be technically proficient, but it's also certainly not creative. And so creativity is actually pretty hard to define. And one of the things I found in my research was that academics have actually a really useful definition for creativity. The definition that they've come up with is the ability to create things that are both novel and valuable, novel and valuable. And the and is important because if it's just novel, well, you know, I can throw paint on a canvas and certainly novel, um, but it's definitely not valuable. I recently learned how to do um, conditional color formatting in Excel, which is certainly valuable. It's definitely not novel. It's definitely not creative. So what creativity is, is that ability to create things that are both novel and valuable. And that distinction, I think, is really, really important for people to understand. Because once you sort of recognize that, it changes your entire framework around creativity. So that would be your definition of creativity? Correct. So to be able to produce something that's novel and valuable. And the issue is that value is a subjective thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so where creativity becomes, becomes a social construct is that in order for something to be labeled as valuable or for something to be labeled as creative, we all have to agree that it's valuable or we all have to agree that it's creative. So that's one of the things I really get into and untangle in the book is you know, there's this sort of element of if you want to be creative, other people have to label you creative. So people have to actually see your work. They have to experience your work. They have to understand how it fits in within the context of other works in your medium. And so there's a whole sort of um, systems model approach that you have to start thinking about. And that's why in the book, one of the things I, I talk about is one of the things you need to do if you want to become a really successful creative is you actually have to consume a lot. And so we talk a lot when it comes to creativity about, you know, there's sort of this like hashtag hustle stuff of like, you know, 90% of people consume, 9% of people engage, 1% of people create. It's stupid and kind of silly. But Mm -hmm. the reason why it's just wrong is that when I actually interviewed these great creatives, they're some of the biggest consumers of content in their medium. Yeah. Because so much of what your job is as a creative is to create things that have that right blend of familiarity and novelty. You don't want to create things that are too new, that are so different that no one likes them. And you don't want to create things that are boring and stale that no one's going to like either. And so as a result, one of the most important things for you to do is actually to understand what's already out there. Right? What is the corpus? What are the things that your audience is seeing and experiencing? And that's one of the key elements of creativity is actually consumption. So consume that content and that's certainly going to help that creative process. Does that mean like no thought or no ideas are really unique or original? Oh, absolutely. I think all art and culture is a remix in some form. I think you know, Kanye West just tweeted about how great artists steal an update. I don't like quoting Kanye West, but he's right. Um, you know, ultimately when you look at art, you know, look at the first star Wars, it was literally a Western in space. Um, when you look at great American novels, there's, there's basically five or six arcs of stories that are repeated over and over again throughout, um, you know, these great novels and these things that we like. And so oftentimes I think it's easy for us to think of creativity really as 
the pursuit of the new, the pursuit of the novel. But if you remember, our definition of creativity is things that are both novel and valuable. And oftentimes, for things to be marked as valuable, they also have to be somewhat familiar. They have to fit within an acceptable range of options. It can't be this thing that's so wild and so new and so different, because then we just get freaked out about it. And I actually talk in the book about um, these two biological urges we have that are really important to consumer preference and taste, because it turns out that um, through evolution, we on one side, we crave familiarity because it signifies safety. Yeah. If there's something that we've seen before, a place we've been before, we know it's safe and our brain is trying to protect us. On the other side, we seek out novelty because of the potential sources of reward, energy, food, what have you. But our brain is constantly assessing and balancing these two things. And the result of that is that there's this thing that scientists observe where the ideas that people like the most are a blend of the familiar and the new. Mm. Okay. Uh, and I think that's, that's a really uh, important distinguish, um, the distinguishing point there of creativity. So, look, if we wanted to develop our creativity um, in any aspect of our life, uh, I suppose the first point would be to look for more consumption of content in that field. Yeah, so it's consumption and it's going very, very, very deep. So I think there's this misnomer that you know creatives go very wide. They're these sort of generalists. But the creatives I interview, these successful creatives, actually go incredibly narrow. Hmm. Because familiarity is important, you need to understand the entire sort of base of knowledge that's already out there. You need to have that understanding so you can know and judge the balance of familiarity and novelty. And so that was one of the interesting things I found. But, you know, I talk about in the book – you know, I sort of, I sort of was, you know, I was writing this and I sort of realized I was like, okay, but a lot of us watch a lot of Netflix, right? A lot of us yeah. watch a lot of TV. So is it really just consumption? And what I found when you untangle it is that these creators, not only do they consume a lot, but they also consume in a very specific way. So, you know, typically when you take in a creative work, as a consumer, you enjoy it, you look at it, you watch it if it's a movie or you listen to it if it's music. How these great creators consume is actually different. What they do is it's sort of this like very interactive, almost tangible way. So they're actually looking at the structure of these works as they're going through them. Um, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, the great novelist, he actually at one point tried to get a master's degree in anthropology. And for his thesis, what he did is he literally read you know some great novels and he mapped out on a chart the emotion, the positive and negative emotional valence of the stories. How is the emotional arcs of these stories? And he was observing that there's these recurring patterns in these great books, these recurring ways in which people told stories. And that's one of the ways that he really learned the art of storytelling. Um, you see this again and again. Ben Franklin writes in his autobiography about how he learned how to be a great writer. He literally went and found some of his favorite articles that other people had written, and he outlined how did they build the argument. Did they start with a quote, an anecdote? to supporting detail. What did they do? And so again and again, you see this sort of, this, um, this type of consumption that's, that's very understanding. It's looking, it's observing, it's, it's figuring out what is that framework? What is that structure of great successful work? So we're not just consuming content mindlessly, but we're actually consuming content with a purpose or intent. Exactly. In a thoughtful, methodical way. Right, that makes a lot of sense. 
Would it be, because I know a lot of people do say, you know, go deep and, and narrow, don't go so wide, but I would sort of think that a lot of creative people are actually are very wide. Uh, maybe they're deep in, in focus, but they're very wide and open to everything out there because there's, of, there's often a cross of disciplines that can actually lead to some really great ideas as well. I think, I mean, I would push back. I would say that I think that's um, a common notion. Yeah. But when you actually dive in, um, the idea of a Renaissance man is incredibly rare. There's actually very few sort of of the great craves we think of that are truly these sort of super eclectic characters. Most of them you would sort of categorize as somewhat maladjusted. Like they very much focus on one very specific thing in a sort of obsessive way. Right, they become the best at this one thing. Um, you know, I think about you know J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry Potter. You know, she was always obsessed with novels and fantasy and fiction and all this stuff. She's not going out and reading about physics and chemistry. You know, that's just not not how she ingests information. So I think I actually think that's a bit of a misnomer right now, where we talk a lot about creativity as sort of the intersection of different fields. But I think that's um, missing the fact that so much of creativity actually comes from familiarity, not from novelty. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly understand what you're saying, and I, and I suppose you know my my thought is that most of the focus will still be in that one particular field, deep uh, and narrow, but a wide observation on more details will certainly help um, bring more to the creative genius in that field. And I mean, you look at the likes of Leonardo; he was very a creative person, but he was very widespread as well. He didn't just go into one field um, and certainly seems his creative genius um, was helped by his curiosity about many things, not just the one. Yeah, I think Leonardo da Vinci is an exception, but yeah. just most of the creatives that, you know, you find and you see out there, it's just, it's just not the norm. Yeah. Most of them go very, very deep in one thing and that's how they become great. Do you think it's a maybe a sign of, of the age where we are today? I mean, there's, I was just talking to a friend recently about the amount of content that is available to us, um, and now it's, it's getting more and more narrowed down and niche um, you know, for the individual itself. Is that going to cause yeah. you know, yeah, I think, an issue I think, going forward? I think, part of it is, I think part of it's getting harder and harder to be the best. You know, there are some interesting studies around you know, how much time does it take to become world-class at different skills. And for example... Right now, if you want to become a world-class piano player, it takes about 25,000 hours. Um, and the reason why is just people have been doing it for hundreds of years. People have been trying. It's, so it is harder and harder to become world-class at a lot of things, which is why you see people moving to more narrow and narrow bands of sort of creative lanes. So what would be some of the tips that you'd have around, you know, finding that, that content that would be best for, you know, developing our creativity? So I think it depends on um, the field, obviously, but I think yeah. the essentials are you get a really good base of understanding in the classics, right? Really understand. So, you know, if it's in, if you want to be a fiction writer, you know, understand sort of the classical works, but also consume the very, very now and present and the relevant, right? Because right? that's what you're going to be out there in the sort of marketplace of ideas against. That's what people are going to be comparing you to and judging, you know, whether or not you're familiar or novel, or is it too similar, too different, all of those sorts of things. So I think it's really important to balance, have sort of a barbell approach where on one side, you know, really, really, really consume all of the sort of essentials. And on the other side, have a really good understanding of sort of the real-time pulse of your market. If you have those two things, you're going to have a good baseline to then create from. Yeah, good point. 
Okay. And so how else do we go about developing our, our creativity? What other sort of, what are the, um, I think you had four patterns in the book. Yeah. So I talk in the book about one of the important things is um, creative communities. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about creativity, we often talk about creativity as this sort of act of like an individual genius, like the Elon Musk, the Steve Jobs, right? But when you actually dig in, when you actually dig in, you find that these great creatives, one of the most important things is actually having people around them. And it's a few different roles. So, you know, for example, since creativity is a social construct and you need people to actually look at your work and acknowledge your work and label it creative for it to be creative, yeah. one of the most important roles in a creative community is that of a promoter, someone who lends you their reputation, lends you their credibility, gets other people to actually pay attention to you. You see this in startups with you know advisors and investors. You see this in music, right? Bands have opening acts that open for them. Um, you see this in entertainment. There's a whole sort of like mentorship, apprenticeship culture in Hollywood where these very successful people bring on very young people and help nurture them into these more successful roles. And so you have to have a promoter. Um, that's one. You also have to have a master teacher. So it's not okay just to have a teacher, but you actually have someone who's world-class in of themselves. There was one study done that looked at 120 people who achieved world-class success at various fields. Yeah. And they found is that of the 120, 120 had a world-class teacher. So actually having someone who's at the top of their game themselves, it turns out, is very, very important. The other thing is who do you surround yourself with on a day-to-day basis, right? Is it your friends from college? Is it your friends from high school? The creatives I interviewed are very focused on bringing other creative people around them. This is for two reasons. One, it gives them more learnings, more market understanding, more awareness of new techniques or things that are going on. On the other side, it also gives them motivation. Right. If you have other creative people around you, A, they help support you emotionally, and B, you experience friendly competition. Right. You actually have those moments of saying, I want to, you know, John did that. I want to do that too. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a really important thing because, especially when you're trying to become great at a creative field later in life, you know, oftentimes why we see young people and child prodigies and all this kind of stuff is that they typically had a parent who kind of forced them through the hard part. And by the time they're self-aware enough, they like what they're doing because they're good at it. Um, and they're like, you know, I have talent for this. And as an adult, there's no you know, parent who's sort of emotionally forcing you to go through with something. And so oftentimes where people give up is the initial difficulty. We're like, well, I just wasn't born with this talent, right? I just don't have it. It should be easier. But it's not easy for anyone. Right. The reason why it seems easy for others is just they were so young when they started. Right. Mozart started taking piano lessons when he was three. His father literally hired the best music teacher in all of Europe and made Mozart practice three hours a day, seven days a week, starting at three years old. Right. So that time he's 18, he doesn't even remember when it was hard because he's been doing it for 15 years. (laughs) That's a really important point, actually, the motivation of getting, you know, amongst other people and and like minded people, too. Um, cause I, I think a lot of creative people can get stuck in their own world and perhaps not have that sense of community and a hundred percent and therefore not have that motivation. And I think there's a lot of talent out there, um, potentially that's like that. They're just sort of hidden in their own little world and, um, you know, not getting exposed as they'd like to. And, you know, they might be content and fulfilled with the emotional sort of, uh, intangibles that come from their creative work, but yeah, bringing it forward to the world and taking it to that next level of success is probably a big part of you know, having that community around you. 
hundred percent. And ultimately to be deemed great at creativity, people have to recognize you for it. And so if you create just for yourself, if you don't ever show anyone what you're doing, it's very, very hard to achieve. Well, that's like you say too about novel and valuable, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's only valuable to you, then that's as, as much you'll get from it. Um, but to make yes, it exactly. to others, that's where it becomes, you know, a, a success. Um, which is another point too, that I want to ask is, you know, about being creative. A lot of people are perhaps afraid to expose or express themselves to the wider audience. Um, what was your research around that? Yeah, I think one of the things I found is so interesting is these great creatives, you know, they're not going off to a cabin in the woods and you know, starting their great American novel and then leaving when it's done and saying, I'm done. Yeah. No, these great creatives are actually some of the most oriented around getting feedback early and often. They want to understand what their audience thinks, what they like, what they don't like. Um, you know, for example, in the movie industry, there's a ton of use of data these days, both actually pre production and actually green lighting movie ideas and also post-production with actually testing ideas and seeing what worked and didn't work. You know, the movie Fatal Attraction, for example, huge hit. They completely reshot the ending because when they tested it, no one liked it. And so the ending that became so famous, it helped to win the Academy Award. That was just the result of data, of getting feedback. And so once you view your creative process less as a go to point A, go to point B, once you view it and realize that getting feedback is part of the process, which means getting negative and critical feedback as part of the process, yeah. feedback in of itself becomes addicting. You know, I experienced there's sort of like a meta thing here where like I wrote a you know, writing a book about creativity is a creative process in of itself. And um, you know, I found it was so interesting because I would write a chapter. And I had a ton of people who were friends who volunteered to help read stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I'd write a chapter. And then, um, you know, I'd get feedback. People were like, oh, this is terrible. You have to change this and this and this. And initially, I was like, oh, this sucks. Like, this is not a good experience. But then once I started taking the feedback, making the changes, and going through those motions and realizing how much better it got and getting it from going from okay to good to great, the feedback in and of itself becomes addicting, right? Now, when I get feedback from people, I'm like, please rip it up. Like, I want to know your most negative feedback because the only way I can fix it, because I'm creating for the audience, the only way I can fix it is getting that feedback. And so you have to reimagine, reframe feedback and critical feedback as part of the process, not the end of the process. Yeah, great point. Really important. Um, mate, look, that's you've, you've shared a lot about creativity and certainly um, inspired me to go away and think about my creative process. The final point I want to touch on is, you know, we've talked about, you know, finding teachers, surrounding yourself by the right people, consuming content. What point do we actually just sit in silence and reflect and generate thought and ideas? Yeah, I think it's very important. I mean, one of the things I talk a little bit in the book about the neuroscience around how um, creativity works in our brain. And one of the things that's really important is essentially um, creativity happens in the right hemisphere of your brain. This is a very simplistic version of it. Yeah. Um, logical processing happens to your left hemisphere of your brain. And your left hemisphere basically needs to kind of be quiet in order to hear what's going on in your right hemisphere is kind of the way to think about it, which is why you have these aha moments like in the shower or on a run. These places where your left hemisphere is kind of like uh, taking a break, so to speak. Yep. And so if you want to have creative ideas, it's important to give yourself that space, right? To give yourself permission to stop, to think, 
um, you know, to be sort of at peace, not to constantly be doing. So if you want to, if you want to experience creativity, don't forget to slow down. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, as you said, will go away, um, isolate themselves, you know, in the woods, in a cabin, um, potentially just going out for a walk, um, having a shower, things like that. Certainly um, can help promote that. Yeah, for that for thing. me, it's the gym. Yeah, you know, as okay. I'm writing the book, it's like the gym is where I get a lot of ideas, and I take a note on my phone and it's just that happens to be where I zone out the most yeah I find swimming and and jogging certainly um good times for me to do that and sometimes that's why I like to you know most people listen to music or I listen to podcasts and audio books when I jog um but sometimes it's a good idea actually just to unplug that as well and just jog without it (laughs) totally yeah mate fantastic stuff really looking forward to it I'm going to stick the book in the show notes guys for this um for Alan's Alan's book The Creative Curve so Check it out there. If you'd like to support the show, um, you can do that by using the links within the show notes uh, to pick up a copy of his book. Alan, any final thoughts, mate? No, I think you know the one thing I would leave you with is I think for a lot of people, the fact that creativity seems easy for others is a really convenient excuse for us not to put in the hard work, right? If we think, well, for some people it's easy and for me it's not, well, I'm just not going to try that hard. It's a really easy way to get ourselves to like give ourselves permission to try hard, less hard. But you have to realize and acknowledge that it's not easy for anybody. It just seems easy. And if you want to be great at something, you can, but it's going to take a lot of work. Got to put the hard work in. Yep, absolutely. Hard, thoughtful work uh, in your words. Exactly. Fantastic stuff, guys. Check it all out at thehiddenwhy.com. I'll put the links into there for Alan. How, how can best... Um, how can people best reach you, Alan? Yeah, if you go to Alan, A-L-L-E-N dot X-Y-Z, there's blog, social media, newsletter, all that stuff. And then um, thecreativecurve.com has some samples and uh, book trailer and all sorts of fun stuff. We'll stick it all. All the links in the show notes, guys. Check it out. And until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Uh, I'll do that, mate. And, yeah, we'll be in touch. Thanks for that. And all the best with the book launch. Good stuff. Awesome. Sorry for calling British. Bye. <laughs> See ya. Bye. Thank you for tuning in and listening to today's conversation. I really hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've been able to take something away, something to help you create a more meaningful life, a life with greater freedom, fulfillment, and happiness. Guys, if you love the content that I produce here at The Hidden Why, there are a few ways you can support me. Firstly, connect with me. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can connect with me online at thehiddenwhy.com or via social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. I would love to hear from you guys. I would love to connect with you. If you've got any thoughts, comments, feedback, suggestions, or anything at all that you'd like to ask me, you can reach me at thehiddenwhyguy at gmail.com. While you're there, guys, make sure you subscribe to thehiddenwhy.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can be kept up to date with all the new episodes and happenings here at The Hidden Why. If you love what you heard in this episode, guys, or any of the others, please share the love. Share it with your family, friends, and anyone you think that might get some value. If you haven't already done so, you can also leave me a review on iTunes. Simply head over to iTunes, type in The Hidden Why, click the Ratings and Reviews button, and leave me a short message, plus a one to five star rating. It helps me reach more people. Once again, guys, I appreciate the time you've taken out of your day to support my show. Until next time, you know what to do. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose, and in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is the Hidden Why Podcast. My name is Liam Arnoldsey. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.